Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome back to Drop Pass Podcast, bud. 83rd episode up ahead and I gotta be honest, I was just about to give myself a two-week summer break after our previous episode, but thanks to Carl Dubis, Mike Greer and Kent Hughes, I had to reshape my plans and come here to share my thoughts on the big trade that finally materialized on August 6th. And... Since I'm already here, I'm also going to update you on the most recent signings as well because we've seen some big extensions as well as free agent signings, so you can call it a pre-preseason update episode if you will. But something like nothing heavy as I said this week, I'm not going to take too much of your time this week since I was prepared to take a break myself and if you are a frequent listener, you know exactly how I am. I just can't let these kinds of things slide and therefore you get to hear my voice again this week. Check the media handles from the description and if you dare, go drop a 5-star rating for the show as well if you happen to enjoy my offering. And if you have any suggestions or comments about past or future episodes, don't be afraid to contact me. I'm always open for DMs. And I also gotta say that I'm fairly excited for the future as well because I got some exciting things cooking up, so stay tuned with my social media. But now... Let's get my boys TZ Joe to open up the play again with these beats. So, without further ado, let's get going. Okay, my guy. Time to inhale some off-season action once again, and if you are eagerly waiting to hear my take on the Carlson trade, you have to wait for a few more minutes since we are first going to tackle the signings front before we move on to our this week's actual main course. And just before we do anything, I have to correct something since I made the mistake of including San Jose Swedish forward prospect William Eklund in my 2024 rookie rankings in the last episode. And soon after publishing the episode, I realized that he wasn't even going to be part of the entire class due to him playing over six games in prior two seasons for the Sharks. But it's in there now. I'm not going to edit that out anymore since I truly meant everything I said in that episode which was that I believe in his breakout season, and in case you haven't checked out that episode yet, then this will just work as a heads up for your future adventure. And in my opinion, it's a stupid rule since we've seen 24-year-old rookies, in quotes, Panarin and Caprizo win the Calder Trophy, but it is what it is, and funny enough, I somehow happened to miss that fact even though I had excluded a couple of guys already prior from my list because of that exact same reason alone. But sometimes, even the best ones hit the post and in this case it was my time to head back to the bench with my tail between my legs. And no, I'm not trying to tell you that I'm the best, absolutely not. This steak is medium minus at best so, if you like your steak well cooked or even medium, you're going to be disappointed but... That's just part of the ride. Hopefully though you learn at least one or two new names in that episode because I can promise you that some of those hunks are going to start lighting up the lamp on the big stage. And the positive thing here for you is that you already know that it's about to happen because JT prepped you for that. So keep the checklist close by once the action starts in the bright lights. 
And speaking of bright lights, next we will move on to the contract front because since July 27th, we've seen a bucket load of new signings that concern some prospects as well as pro free agents. So let's go over those before we move on to the core of this week's episode. And pretty much like you could expect, most of the names that are going to be highlighted within the next couple of minutes are restricted free agents since most of the available top-tier UFAs have already been signed to contracts. And like we've seen in the past couple of years, teams are more willing to give PTOs, aka professional tryouts, to the final remaining free agents closer to the training camp. So while there are still quite intriguing names available on the market in Thomas Tatar, Josh Bailey, Yaro Halak, Ethan Bear, Nick Ritchie, Adam Ernie, Maxim Comtois, and former fourth overall selection Jesse Pouliot-Järvi, for example. Most of the available free agents have been taken off the market, and the few that still remain there are likely going to receive close to late minimum one-year sheets, or just get signed to PTOs ahead of the training camp, so pretty much the contract front has now quieted down as well, at least when it comes to UFAs. RFA-wise, there are still few names that are waiting for their extension sheets, and the most notable names in that category are Trevor Zegris, Alexis Lafreniere, Jamie Drysdale, Shane Pinto, Evan Bouchard, Morgan Frost, and Kalen Addison, but like you could probably guess, I don't expect those guys to sit out when the camps start, because they are some of the top upcoming talents in this league that still need some time to establish themselves truly on the next level, so... More than likely, it's more of a question of when rather than if, and pretty much Addison and Lafreniere are the only guys that I could realistically see changing zip codes if their respective teams end up finding a market return that they are satisfied with. But while saying that, I'm not saying that those guys are locks to get traded either, but certainly those two names are the ones that have circled around the trade block since the start of the official offseason. And you may understand why when you look at their team's current cap and roster situations. But signing-wise, the names that got their next paychecks within the past two weeks include prospects Zach Benson and Easton Cowan, RFA's Jack McBain, Kevin Ball, Jesse Ulonen, Nick Abruzzisi, Philip Gustafsson, Trent Frederick, Jeremy Swayman, Ryan McLeod, Drew O'Connor, Troy Terry, Rasmus Kupari, and Samuel Erson. While Tom Wilson, Matt Dumba, Alex Daylock, Cal Foote, Caleb Jones, and P.U. Suter represent the UFA class, that got their new paychecks after we covered the free agent front in our last episode. Benson, who was Buffalo's top pick in this year's draft, received his three-year ELC, but is obviously expected to continue to dominate in the WHL in the upcoming season. And likewise, Toronto's this summer surprise first-round selection, Easton Cowan, got his three-year max ELC, and is expected to continue where he left off in this year's OHL playoffs with the London Knights, where he registered almost point-per-game average and this way brought up his draft stock quite a bit as we saw in the final results of the very first round. And as we move on to RFA front, I gotta point out first and foremost to Jack McBain signing since I don't know what the fuck happened here since he was signed to a two-year extension which average annual value will be $1,599,999, so only a dollar away from $1.6 million total. So like, either this is the greatest cucking of professional sports history, or McBain wanted to remain in a lower tax bracket, because I have no clue 
what led to this situation, and I think I ain't the only one standing here with question marks bouncing up and down in my brain. Regardless, that's what he got, but if someone has some inside information, relay it straight to me, because I would love to hear the reasoning behind this, just so that I don't get the impression that Bill Armstrong is really able to negotiate these kinds of discounts while managing a team that is playing in a fucking NCAA arena. Moving right along, next up was New Jersey's truck-like defenseman Kevin Ball's turn to get his next paycheck, and thanks to his great first full year with the Devils, GM Fitzy was willing to sign him to a two-year bridge deal carrying a 1.05 million AAV, which still leaves the team some room to maneuver money-wise and enables Ball to really show that he belongs to their core six. But certainly, if the big left-handed blue runner keeps on improving on the next level and becomes one of their best defensive options on their back end, his next paycheck will surpass the 2 million mark by a large margin, because we've seen how valuable these types of physical specimens become come the playoff time. Montreal, on the other hand, gave out a one-year league minimum deal to their Finnish rep Jesse Ylönen, who played in 37 games for them this year, and this way established his presence on their depth chart with 16 points from those contests. Meanwhile, the Leafs were willing to ink their 2019 fourth-round selection Nick Aprizizi to a two-year league minimum deal, which just basically means that he still has two more years remaining to show that he has what it takes to make his real entry into the bright lights. He notched two points in two games on the top level last year and recorded 48 dots from 69 AHL regular season contests, plus tallied home seven points in same amount of games in the playoffs, so... In my mind, he's the next man on the doorstep of the NHL behind Matthew Nice. Given that Nick Robertson, who was expected to be the next guy to break into the Leafs' top nine, has seriously struggled with injuries. And for example, was only able to play 17 games this past year, so... Finally, the two names that have been waiting to get their chances in the bright lights in the Leafs' uniform seem to be closer than ever to making that vision actually reality. Pittsburgh's bottom six option Drew O'Connor also belongs to the Under Millie Club as he was signed to a two-year 925k extension by their new official GM Carl Dubes. Meanwhile, Bruins locked up their young guns Trent Frederick and Jeremy Swayman after a few days of arbitration negotiations. Frederick was handed a two-year 2.3 million sheet and he has brilliantly molded into a Bruins-esque physical agitator on the ice. And since those are fairly hard to find in this day and age, it was a no-brainer that he would remain in Boston, and the question just was going to be, with what cost? And now we know what the price was for keeping him a beat town for the next two seasons. Meanwhile, Jeremy Swayman got himself just a one-year 3.475 deal from their GM Don Sweeney. And like I mentioned in one of the previous episodes, it is now looking like they have to part ways with one of their netminders if they want to boost their overall squad outlook, especially the forward front, because they retain Swayman with pretty cheap deal. And once that bridge deal comes to its end, I would imagine that he is looking towards similar numbers to Ulmark, who just capped off a Vesna-level season. So the next year will be very telling who's going to remain in B-Town, because their AHL stud Brandon Busey is already on his way to the bright lights thanks to his elite season in the minors this year. And while speaking of goaltenders, I might as well throw in Minnesota's second move of this year's offseason, 
which included their this year's breakout star Philip Gustafsson, who was inked to a three-year, $3.75 million bridge-esque deal. Which tells me that their GM Bill Guerin still controlled the ropes in the negotiation table, given that Gustafsson now has just won a lead year in the NHL. So, understandably, that still isn't too much to go by in the big league, so obviously they got him for cheap, there's no way around it. And this deal just tells me that Guerin wants to see him repeat that again until he's ready to invest big bucks to the Swede before the official arrival of their lord and savior Jesper Wallstedt. And once that happens, the situation might be completely different, so I guess they will tackle that obstacle once they face it, but right now, this has to be one of the best deals of this year's offseason, hands down, if, obviously, Gustafsson is able to repeat his this year's heroics. Oilers then signed their 2018 second-round selection centerman Ryan McLeod to a two-year bridge deal, which will carry a 2.1 million annual value. And in my eyes, he's the next guy under the microscope in Edmonton now that both Yamamoto and Paul Yarvi have been let go. So the next two years are going to be big for this left-handed two-way center because in the best case, they have themselves a speedy top-nine center whose offensive upside is still pretty well hidden, at least in my eyes. And I wouldn't be surprised to see his numbers climbing up if he ends up seeing more minutes on their top lines at some point. But currently... Since he's set on their third slash fourth line, the offensive opportunities are few and far in between, so I still think that we haven't even seen the best of this guy and I expect to see much more out of him in the coming years because his offensive skills haven't disappeared anywhere from his days in Mississauga. And like I said previously, the Oils still need to figure out a way to sign their right-handed blue liner Evan Bouchard to his next contract, so... That is next on the to-do list of their GM Ken Holland, so expect to hear more news from Edmonton in the next upcoming weeks. After that signing, it was Winnipeg's time to finally ink their last remaining asset, which they got in the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade to an extension, and that guy was Rasmus Kupari, who was handed a two-year paper with 1 million AAV, so... Pretty much the same song continues here as well, where teams are probably counting on the cap rising quite significantly within the next two years. And at that point, most of these guys are starting to hit their prime years, so then it is time to start earning the big bucks. And that same rule applies to Kupare in this case as well. And the biggest extension paper of this week's episode came out of Anaheim as the Ducks inked their top six forward Troy Terry to a seven-year 49 million extension. So to all you guys that aren't that good at math, it's 7 million AAV per season. And obviously there's quite a lot of upside there since he showcased this offensive upside within the past few seasons. And if Trevor Segris continues to improve his game towards the elite of this league, his numbers could keep climbing quite rapidly, but obviously some injury concerns more than likely dropped the overall value of the contract to some extent. And I would guess that their new GM Pat Verbeek has used some trust the process leverage here as well, where he talks these guys into taking small pay cuts in order to keep all their upcoming pieces in Anaheim for as long as possible, in order to make them one of the powerhouses of the league within the next 45 years. And I would guess that's, for example, one of the reasons why Zegers hasn't been signed yet to his extension because more than likely he knows that he's going to be one of the superstars in this league for years and wants to be paid like it well. Where Big wants him to think more about the team itself and what kind of guys they need to sign in the next three years to make them a real contender in this league again. 
by taking a pay cut just like I said just a moment ago. So I would compare this one to the ones Habs GM Kent Hughes signed since the upside is fairly similar to Caulfield and Suzuki and obviously both of those guys took a handful more than what Terry took but the prospect pipelines aren't the same by any means and I would even go as far as say that the Ducks have to let go some of their top prospects in order to get more veteran presence into their locker room and purely just to be able to allocate the ice time for their brightest stars but that's a topic for another time. And if Terry was the salary king of this week's episode, hands down the most viral name of last week was Washington's own Tom Wilson, who was signed to a 7-year, 6.5 million contract extension. And as you could guess, people on the internet absolutely memed the shit out of this contract. And I guess rightfully so. But like... Can you imagine how many teams would have been after this guy if he would have hit the open market next summer? Because every guy in the NHL knows who he is, what he brings to the table, and I'm quite sure that no one in that league loves to play against him purely because of the intimidation factor alone. And truthfully, he's a straight-up unicorn in this league with the way he plays the game, and especially teams in the Metro division more than likely would have loved to see him leaving the Metro behind, but unfortunately for them, that is not going to be the case, and they have to prepare themselves for another seven years of ragdolling when they face this right-handed bulldozer. So by signing Wilson, the Caps kind of kept the strings to themselves, and obviously their aim still is to return to the postseason after starting their golf season early this year. So, while on the other hand, he's just an asset that they didn't want to let go for free, but also they won't be in a situation where they would need to face him either. So, it's a win-win in that way as well, and while they still could become immovable at some point, if he starts to show more signs of being injury-prone, but currently he's still a player that will garner a lot of attention if made available before the final stretch of the hockey season. And yes, especially the extension length is extremely questionable, but I'm 100% sure that he would have gotten even more on the open market if it would have come down to that situation. No ifs or buts about it, so. What I can now say is that obviously I don't love the deal, there's no questions about that, but I fully get why they were willing to sign him to that kind of a deal. After all, he has played his entire career in DC, so that must have also counted towards something. And some might even say that he has started this downward spiral given the injury concerns, and the fact that he only played 33 games for the Caps last year. But still, you don't find anyone like him from the NHL and that adds a lot of value especially when the tough games begin later during the spring like we just saw in 2018 when the Caps took home the Lord Stanley. So all in all, somewhat of a ridiculous signing no doubt. The guy will turn 36 when that contract comes to its end and unfortunately, I think that he won't have the longevity to stay in the league for that long given his rugged playstyle but until we start to see him more regularly in the press box than on the ice, he will stay as a really, really impactful asset for the Caps in my mind that no other team in the entire league currently possesses. But that's pretty much what I have to say about the Wilson signing that took the spotlight last week once the cost and trade speculation had come to its end. 
And the final RFA deal from last week came from Philly, who spread some dough as they signed their Swedish netminder Samuel Ersson to a two-year 1.45 million contract extension. And some of you might be asking, like, who's this guy and when teams started to sign AHL goalies to plus one million contracts? And I get the point, but this past year was just his second full year across the Atlantic Ocean between the sticks, and the guy is even one year younger than their current starter Carter Hart, so... Currently, he's the second guy in line for their starting job, which earns him the big bucks. And of course, Breer has to use the available cap space just to be cap compliant. So there's obviously worse ways to do that than to give some dough to your promising upcoming netminder. He played 12 games for the Flyers last year and it wasn't completely horrible, especially when keeping in mind how brutal the team was last year. And his AGL numbers as well create some interest around him, so hopefully he continues to improve his game and ends up challenging hard for the starting job in the city of brotherly love. And after that, we move on to the final signings of the past two weeks, which all happen to be unrestricted free agents. And first on the board is going to be the former wild defenseman Matt Dumba, who in fact ended up signing in Arizona after weeks of speculation. And what I think took so long here was the fact that he more than likely was looking to sign with a playoff contender. But after two months of margaritas and sunbathing, the right-handed blue liner finally accepted Arizona's one-year 3.9 million contract offer. And after this signing, I have to say that the Yotes aren't looking that bad after all, especially when compared to their past rosters. And while they are still light years away from the top of the league, guys like Zucker, Kerfoot, Dumba, and Dursey will strengthen the team even more, which honestly brings them hope when looking at their results from past year and when you check the roster that they were dealing with then. And of course, they lost Ghost and Jigrin from their back end last year, but at least their forward core has taken a significant step onwards this offseason. And you also got to remember that they still got guys like Clayton Keller and Nick Schmaltz on top alongside Joso Valimäki and J.J. Moser, who fly under the radar on the league-wide level. Plus, of course, their upcoming names Magelli, Hayden, Cooley, and Genther. So, this team could really draw some interest next year if they end up making some noise early on in the season. Dumba won't bring them that much offense, but his physicality and defensive end prowess are much needed on this Yotes lineup, so... I like this signing by the Yotes and believe that he will do just fine in the desert before he gets shipped elsewhere before the deadline closes because you can tell me that he won't be a trade chip once the cream of the crop starts to separate itself closer to the Lord Stanley race. Then on August 7th, the Anaheim Ducks decided to add one more name to their crease as they signed a veteran netminder Alex Taylor to a one-year 800k deal. And honestly, this was just an inevitability given the Gibson trade rumors and the fact that the Ducks before this signing had just two NHL-caliber netminders on their roster, thanks to Anthony Stollers' departure. So, not a massive addition, but a necessary one for a team that could be looking to change their number one option in net this upcoming season. And speaking of goaltenders, you might remember me telling you not to be surprised when the Leafs signed veteran Brian Elliott to a one-year league minimum deal a couple weeks ago. Well, that didn't end up becoming reality since instead, Leafs new GM Brad Treleving decided to haul in Seattle's last year's 1B option Martin Jones, who was signed to a one-year 875k deal, and this way, they've locked up their trio for the upcoming season. 
And since Jones has already gotten used to the popcorn section in the press box, he's going to see some more of that next year as well. Since more than likely, Sam Sanov and Wall will be their tandem going forward. So if nothing drastic ends up happening, the 33-year-old veteran will play the third fiddle in Toronto. But given that the Leafs are notorious for playing emergency backups on constant basis, we might end up seeing him between their sticks more often than not so. All in all, a move that was bound to happen, no questions about it. And then we move on to the final three names that got their new paychecks last week. And first on our list is going to be Tampa Bay's former first-round selection, Calfoot, who was part of the Tanner's no trade at this year's trade deadline. But since he wasn't able to convince the Preds' leadership with his play, he ended up hitting the open market, from which the New Jersey Devils scrapped him with one-year, 800k two-way contract. And I gotta say that I've been a bit disappointed by his impact on the next level since I had quite big hopes for him after his stellar WHL campaign. So it's been quite hard to watch him struggle to make his mark on the NHL level. And this deal doesn't bring me much more confidence about his future odds. So hopefully he takes the third available spot on the right side and ends up taking the next step in his development. Because I have no doubt in my mind that he wouldn't be able to secure himself a future as a defensive-minded top-six blowliner in the big league. Kings also ended up bolstering their blue line even more by adding left-handed defenseman Caleb Jones to their rotation. And while this isn't the most spectacular move on the league-wide level, I gotta say that I'm really, really starting to warm up for this team and their Stanley Cup odds rather quickly. Their blue line is now stacked to its skills, and while some may still have some concerns about their forward core and their ability to produce, I won't be underestimating this team next year because I already saw them clowning me during this year's postseason. And now that they have one of the most stacked blue lines in the entire league, I'm totally on board in this ride, so don't be surprised to see me ranking them quite far up there when it comes to the league standings. They were already my favorite to win the President's Trophy this past year, and I wasn't totally out to lunch with that take, so the odds have just gotten better this year in my eyes. And they still have the opportunity to work some magic on the trade front during the season, so they've quickly become one of the Stanley Cup favorites in many people's papers. Jones by himself won't bring that much more to their game compared to most of their other blue line options, but Certainly he will work as a perfect, more defensive-minded filler when injuries start to affect the team. So, a great grab in my opinion that wasn't on many teams' radar this summer, I would guess. And the last deal of this week's episode came from Vancouver as the Canucks ended up grabbing home the Swiss middle six option Pew Suter from the open market with two-year 1.6 million deal. And while some may say that this was another Canucks-esque overpayment, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as say that since he can chip in offensively from time to time and at the end of the day, 1.6 million for a bottom six option ain't that tragic when looking at what the other guys of his caliber are currently making so. Quite honestly, I was a bit surprised that he remained unsigned this long because his speed and two-way game are assets that most teams in the league would want to see on their lineup on nightly basis. But that will wrap up our this week's contract talk and next we head to the big trade that was seen as a fairy tale just a couple of seasons ago. But thanks to his Norris season, it became reality sooner than we might have expected. So let's uncover that whole cake next. And just before we start to break down the three-way trade that broke the headlines, 
I have to let you know about this week's show sponsor, so sit tight and listen what our friends at Raycon have cooked up for you today. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey, buddy. If you've already spent your summer break and are starting to get ready for yearly fall grind, the final summer days are still all about vacation state of mind. Whether I want to listen to Dua Lipa on repeat or just need to retreat inside my own head for a bit, I love creating my own summer soundtrack by popping in my Raycon wireless earbuds. There's so much going on all summer, sometimes you need some upbeat music to pump you up before you see people, or just stay calm with some guided meditation. For example, everyday earbuds are my go-to when I head to hit the legs in the gym because they work as a smelling salt for my ears and help me lift some heavy stuff off the ground, but they also help me tune in when I start to prepare myself for another couple-hour recording session. Let me tell you right now, Raycons are the best way to listen. Use earbud tap functions to toggle between three customizable sound profiles, noise isolation, in awareness mode. Raycons have 32-hour battery life, including 8 hours of playtime, so you can listen to what you want, when you want, for a really long time. They come with custom gel tips for the most comfortable in-ear fit. They start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And Raycons come with a 30-day happiness guarantee, so you really can't lose. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon. Right now, Drop Pass podcast listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash THPN. That's buyraycon.com slash THPN to save 15% off Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash THPN. Thank you Raycon for sponsoring this week's show and indeed if you are looking for a way to support the podcast you can also do that by using the promo code THPN at the checkout when getting yourself a fresh pair of headphones. But next up as I promised will be the massive three-way Eric Carlson trade and the teams involved in this deal to those who are not aware were the San Jose Sharks and the Pittsburgh Penguins plus the broker Montreal Canadiens. Pittsburgh got themselves the big price of this deal, but also acquired a big centerman Dylan Hamaliuk from San Jose in addition to their 2026 third-round selection. And just to even out the playing field, the Habs also sent bottom six forward Rem Pitlick to Pittsburgh, whose minutes were in question in Montreal thanks to the emergence of their younger generation. Sharks, on the other hand, received Mikael Granlund and Jan Ruda from Steel City, in addition to Pittsburgh's top 10 protected 2024 first-round pick, while Montreal ended up sending Mike Hoffman and his 4.5 million contract to California just to dump his ass elsewhere. 
in return got a three-player package from Pittsburgh as Jeff Petrie ended up returning to Quebec with retained salary. But also, the Habs got themselves another NHL caliber netminder in Casey Desmith and also writes for Pittsburgh's 2019 third-round selection Nathan Agare, who also makes his return to his old stomping grounds in the French-speaking province. And the final piece included in this deal also came from Pittsburgh as they sent their 2025 second-round pick to Montreal for taking on both the Smiths as well as Petrie's contracts, plus for sending them Pitlick as part of this deal. So quite a lot of movement in total, so it is absolutely necessary to start piece this thing together team by team, am I right? Yeah. So the Pens obviously got the queen of the ball here and they get in with a 10 million price tag instead of the 11.5 million, which would have been the total cap hit if the Sharks wouldn't have retained any salary. But since they at least got a small discount on him, I think it's a small W by itself. While the 10 for next four years is still quite a high price to pay for his services to say the least. But we will get more into that in just a moment, so let's keep by that for now. Malik was San Jose's second-round selection back in 2019, but he's had his struggles on the professional level so far. And the upside there is a bottom-six option at max, so I guess he was just an add-on. Walren Pitlick could bring some additional offense to their middle-slash-bottom-six, but certainly he isn't expected to be any magician on their lineup, and that goes even without saying. And of course, a draft pick is always a draft pick, and you can use that any way you want. Either you use it as a part of a trade or you can use it to draft some long shot in the early mid-rounds. So who the heck knows if that eventually ends up becoming the biggest asset from this trade. But even though Carlson is clearly the biggest price for them in this deal, you cannot just underestimate the value of getting rid of Granlin's, Petris and Rudess contracts. Because that opened up over 3 million to their cap space by itself. And while they lost some depth from their roster, they just basically gave out depreciating assets in this deal, so I see that as a big W for the Pens as well. Even though they had to sweeten the deal with few picks, but still, I don't think that many people even realize how big of a win that can end up being when they start to look around for more additions later on during next year's campaign. Lagari also hasn't been able to make a lasting impression on the pro ranks, so... I would say that it wasn't too tough for Dubas to let him go eventually, and also they have guys like Mark Friedman and Chad Ruweedle on the right side blue line, so letting go of Ruda was a smart play in my books, because they have already cheaper replacements for him on their roster as it is. But that is not all what I have to say about this deal regarding the Pens, so I must still leave a few words for the end for the overall summary, but... Let's move next to San Jose to check out the overall return they got for their right-handed blue liner. So, as you could imagine, just getting rid of Carlson's contract at his current trade value was a massive W for the Sharks because they ain't playing for playoff spots and that's a fact, even how badly some Sharks fans would like to think that way. So, all in all, I see the haul they got for him as a decent return while only one draft pick is somewhat of a disappointment for a guy that just broke the 100-point mark as a defenseman for the first time in over 20 years. Both Hoffman and Granlund are basically just complementary pieces at this point who can put up decent offensive numbers by themselves, but are not, but are not going to be any superstars on that lineup, that's for sure. 
They will assist their younger guard on their path to the bright lights, which is always a plus for a team that is going through a major turnover. And since both guys don't have that many years on their contracts anymore, they can pretty much just ship them elsewhere at the deadline if they can find teams that are looking for those types of players. And if they end up retaining some salary, those cap hits then don't end up being too big to obtain. So it's certainly not much they got in these two, but since they are slowly trickling down the West standings, they have to change their stance on playoffs, and this is one of the most effective ways to turn your franchise upside down in just a couple of years. The first rounder they got could become extremely valuable given the stacked nature of the upcoming draft class, and they now have two firsts and two seconds in the upcoming draft, so they are bound to add even more names to their growing talent pool of young players. And finally, when it comes to Ruda, Obviously, he won't be a miracle worker for the Sharks and will just pretty much work as a trade bait for the contenders at the back half of the season. So, while he slightly improves their back end by a small margin, his best trade currently is the 2.75 million cap hit for the next two years, which will get dealt elsewhere within the next 12 months, I would think. So, what else can you really say about the return they got for the Swiss Blue Liner? Good that he's now gone. And at least they got something in return. That wasn't just Hoffman, Granlund, and Ruda. And finally, when it comes to Canadians' haul, I would say it's at least decent since their blue line now gets back some veteran presence, and even though Petrus' game has started to show more real signs of aging, he's still a capable top six defender in his own rights, and more than anything, he will work as a mentor for their upcoming blue line names. So, all in all, I'm not too bummed about his addition and realized that he has seen his best days on the NHL ice, no doubt. He also comes with a discount, like I said, since the Pens were willing to retain 25% of his salary, so his cap hit for the next two years will be 4.69. Meanwhile, I like the Casey Desmith's addition quite a lot more, because he was decent in Pittsburgh last year and even the year prior, so while he's not expected to take the starting role straight out of gates, he can do that if the situation demands it, especially when knowing the injury struggles Jake Allen has battled with throughout the past few years. He will obviously compete against Sam Montembo for the 1B role, and that should only give him even more ammunition to improve his game. So, even though his addition isn't anything special, it's a significant improvement to the trio they iced ahead of last year's NHL campaign. And finally, when it comes to Legare, Unfortunately, his upside has dwindled down quite a lot since he was drafted and the best outcome I can see is a bottom six option for the Habs, but at least now he gets to head back to his home base, which is always a dream come true for a guy that was born and raised in the most historical NHL city. So my honest conclusion to this trade is that every team got their own W's from this outcome. Pence flip Petrie for Carlson and this way add one of the best offensive blue liners in the league to lead their first power play unit. Sharks get rid of Carlson's contract while his trade value is highest it's been since his Ottawa days and also acquire another high value first rounder in exchange as well. While the Habs get solid pieces to their otherwise shaky lineup plus another second round draft pick so it's way too early to tell who the real winner of this deal ends up being. But certainly, this exchange wasn't totally horrible for any of these three teams.
But will this move take the pen straight back to playoff conversation is probably the biggest question currently. And my honest answer is no. Their goaltending is still very much in doubt thanks to Tristan Jarry's fluctuating level of play. Defense got a bit better with their most recent acquisitions, so that's a big plus in my papers, but still, their forward core is extremely top-heavy, where you have guys like Gensel, Crosby, Malkin, Raquel, Rust, and Smith, who carry the team's offense, but like I've said in the past, their core isn't getting any younger, and if one or two of their top names end up getting hurt in the midst of the hockey season, this team could find itself out of the playoff picture, and that has been their biggest worry during the past three years, I would say. Luckily, Gino and Crosby haven't shown any major signs of aging, and both guys were absolute heroes for them during this year's campaign, but age is a real factor, and since this team doesn't base their game to speed anymore, they could be in trouble against the speedier teams of the NHL next season. Certainly, I still see them as a contender in the Eastern Conference, but when you look at the teams that are starting to push towards the top spots in both the Metro as well as the Atlantic, you quickly notice that this team will have its hands full when it comes to open eight spots for next year's last dance. But lastly, before we start to slowly close out this week's episode, I have to say that I give huge props for Dubas for executing this move since he was first of all able to ditch some of the worst contracts off their books without many people even realizing it, and second of all, was willing to throw caution in the air just to get this team back in the playoff picture by acquiring one of the most divisive players of the past five years. This is exactly the type of move the Pens needed to make in order to increase their chances of finding the postseason next year, and while the fact just is that Carlson's 10 million contract won't age that well in Steel City, and that the return they gave up for him was quite a large one, the upside is there to move the needle by just a tiny bit to get the guys like Gino, Kenzel, Crosby, and Tanger excited to fight for another Lord Stanley at the end of next year's NHL campaign. And if this in fact ends up being the second coming of Mr. Carson, not that many people are most likely going to be shouting at the barricades for Dubis' head, so it's a huge investment in all aspects, but this is exactly what the Pens needed to make their last push towards the Stanley Cup before the old guard. Says their farewells to the sport, so big props for Big D, and that's all I have to say about this matter. Let me know if I made any sense with my take and if you can get on board because Dubas was acquired to Pittsburgh for this exact reason and I love that he absolutely threw balls on the wall and broke Carson out of San Jose against most odds. But if you feel like this was one of the worst moves in the hockey history as well as takes, let me know as well because I'm all ears and would love to hear your takes on this matter. So let me know how did you feel about this when it was first announced. And the last two headlines I want to shine some light on to this week concern Flyers defenseman Ryan Ellis and also a new ruling that was put in place in QMJHL for the upcoming hockey season. So first of all, in short, Ryan Ellis's return onto the NHL ice is now officially in question due to a torn back muscle which hasn't healed according to expectations, but 
since he's been out of the league for almost two years now, some might have thought that he had officially retired already, but that isn't the case. And he has just been battling with the injury that has bugged him for many, many years now. So this news piece shouldn't come as a surprise to many and more than anything it's just an unfortunate piece of news for any fans who were keen on seeing him return onto the ice at some point with the Flyers but by the looks of it his days in the NHL are now counted and next the Philly fans more than likely would love to hear what's the current injury update on Sean Couturier who has missed one and a half season worth of NHL hockey due to his own health issue. And the last piece I want to bring up in our this week's show concerns the softest Canadian hockey league, the QMJHL, which earlier this week announced that fighting was going to be banned from the league entirely. And while I'm not a fight advocate by any means, I don't know who the fuck came up with this ruling, because the fact of the matter is that fights will happen even with this ruling set in place. There's no way around it. Because guys give their all on the ice each night and sometimes things just heat up and soup spoil over which sometimes inevitably lead to scraps so. The clown league of the CHL just bought themselves a bigger red nose and quite frankly the reasoning behind this ruling can't be that there's too much fighting in the sport because it has gone down significantly even since the early 2000s so. I truly don't understand why this was even implemented in the first place. But I guess some individuals just want to turn this thing into bandy where no fighting or hitting is allowed. And I would straight up tell those guys to fuck off because you start to strip this sport into pieces by taking game-changing elements out of it one by one. So in some sense, I could say that this is type of a gateway drug for hockey fans who want to start moving away from the physical side of the sport. And honestly... It isn't that surprising that this initiative came from the French-based province. And just to be clear, I'm not attacking and labeling every French-Canadian under this flag. Absolutely not. I know most of you guys are just as much against it as I am. And this is more directed to the decision-making heads behind the fucking mahogany tables. But that's that. I guess we just have to live with it. At least I've gotten my frustration out of my system now. And with that, we've also come to the end of our this week's show. Like I said, I was planning on taking a break before I start to carve out the season previews for you. But since we got the big news right at the start of last week, I decided to update you on the most recent headlines. But now I can officially tell you that the break will start and you have to replay some of the earlier episodes if you want to hear my heavenly voice before I make my return in front of this microphone. And in case you've happened to miss some episodes here and there, now is a perfect time to check those out as well. And obviously, I would suggest you go listen to the guest episodes if you haven't done that already because some new names might be added to the list rather soon. And also, I'm still going to stay active on the IG side during the break. So if you want to stay updated, that's where you will find my artworks while you wait for the comeback episode itself. But that's about it for this week. As I mentioned, this was meant to be just an update episode and I feel like we succeeded in that. So hopefully you enjoyed. And if you did, leave a rating for the podcast and go take over the media handles mentioned in the description. Because like I said, those will be up to date despite my two-week break. 
Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate that you stopped by for another episode and hope to see you again once I return with some more NHL news. Now though, I start to prep my gear for the upcoming waterfowl season, so wish me luck. Have an awesome week, you beauty. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time.